0: Welcome to the Filipino American Woman Project, also known as TIFA Project for short, a podcast show that features stories and life lessons told by American women of Filipino descent. We're your co-hosts, Jen Amos. And I'm Nani Dominguez. And thank you for
1: joining us. If today's conversation resonates with you, text us and let us know at
0: 415-484-8329. And if you want to show us some love, buy us boba at buymeacoffee.com forward slash Jen and Nani. It says coffee, but we love boba. Again, that's
1: www.buymeacoffee.com slash Jen and Nani. Awesome. With that
0: said, thank you all for your love and support. Now let's get into the show. All right. Well, hey, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of the Filipino American Woman Project, also known as Tifa Project for short. I am your creator and co-host, Jen Amos. I have my co-host with me still, thank goodness, at least at the time of this recording, (laughs) Nani Dominguez. Nani, welcome back. Hey, everyone. Yes. And just some call to actions before we dive into today's conversation. So as you know, our academic paper, Panay Podcasters, what I kind of call like the first book that's going to be coming out about Filipino American women in podcasting is now available for you all to read at PanayPodcasters.com. And I mention this a lot, but I don't think it ever gets old, but I just want to credit Nani for really writing the majority of it. <laughs> And taking my audio, you know, my audio transcripts and making it sound amazing. So Nani, I know it's been a couple months now, really, since we presented this paper at the Bulasan Center, but any quick thoughts about it, you know, since it's been a couple months now, any new epiphanies or just anything that you want to share, you know, for our listeners to check it out at penipodcasters.com.
1: Yeah, I think that enough time has passed now for it to really soak in kind of the impact of the intention that we had with this paper and hearing the people that have reached out to me to give me feedback who have actually, you know, gone on PanayPodcasters.com to read it and check it out is just really meaningful and special. I know that you always credit me with the majority of the writing duties, but it was really a collaborative effort between you, myself and Stacy, of course who really led us through the process, because we are not familiar with the at least recent processes and procedures of writing an academic paper. So that was really all her and helping us format it and do all the technical stuff. And then, you know, you with the brainstorming and the otter dumping (laughs) for me to transcribe. So. Yeah, I just really appreciate the way that we all work together on that. And I think that you can really tell in reading the finished product that we have right now, which is not a finished product, we are going to continue to work on it, you know, as we work to publish it out further. But yeah, you can really just feel the love, I think, when you read that paper. And even though I tried to make it into like a very cohesive voice, you can kind of tell where we all kind of jumped in and and dumped ideas in that paper.
0: Yeah, for sure. And I like how we play hot potato when it comes to compliments because <laughs> we're like, "Oh, well, but I also got to credit Jen. I got to credit Stacy." But again, yes. I think that's just what I love about our community is that we make sure that we remind ourselves that this was a collective effort, right? And I'm just again, as often as I try to compliment you and Stacy like Someone always has a way to kind of deflect it back or send it back. And reminding me too that, like, even though, you know, the majority of the time you were writing, it's like, well, obviously the paper wouldn't have existed hadn't I started the show. And then the paper wouldn't have existed hadn't Stacy encouraged us to write a paper about it. Right. So I just exactly. appreciate, I appreciate that, you know, acknowledgement of us doing this collectively because that's really a good representation, I think, of our community. Yeah.
1: We all played integral roles in putting that together. And we hope that it's equally as well received by the community as it was a joy for us to create it.
0: Yes, absolutely. So once again, you all can check out our initial draft of the Academic Paper Panay Podcasters now at panaypodcasters.com. All right, that's it. That's all the call to actions I'm gonna to do today. Cause I just really wanna jump into our conversation today. I want to go ahead and bring on the incredible Emmy Collegato, who is an actor and mother to butters, who is the sweetest one-eyed blind diabetic dog, by the way. Mm. And she's also promoting The Girl Who Left Home, where she was an actor and also the exec producer. You can learn about this film now, this musical featured film at girlwholeft.com. And then also, if you want to get a hold of Emmy, you can check out her website at EmmyColigado.com, And she's also on Instagram, emmicalegato.com and YouTube. You can kind of find her everywhere. She's kind of been in the entertainment industry for a long time. So without further ado, Emmy, welcome to the show. Hi, thank you so much for having me. Yeah, for sure. And we wanted to give a shout out to Francesca for the time of this recording. Her episode just came out. So just tell us a little briefly, like, you know, kind of like how you know her and also what compelled you to join our conversation today here at the Tifa Project. Yes, I met Francesca McKenzie. I think
2: of her as like My little sister, we did a reading of a Filipina written play called Export Quality. It's Mm -hmm. about written by three Filipina women and it's about mail order brides. Mm -hmm. And we were doing the reading for that and became friends since then. That was probably, it was pre-pandemic, so two years ago. And then I learned about your podcast because I've been following you on Instagram. Wow.
0: (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you. You know, thank you so much for sharing that. And also shout out to Francesca. If you all want to check out her episode, which is available right now, she is episode 115. And I really like kind of how we chose or at least her title of her episode. I know Nani had two different titles, but I decided to go with this one because I felt like it was quite reflective of today's times. And I just thought it was quite motivational. She says... If we inherit our ancestral trauma, we also inherit our ancestral resistance, joy, and resilience. So once again, that just came out July 16th, 2021, episode 115. Go ahead and check that out. Yeah, like I was
1: telling Emmy offline, we've both been in community with Francesca in different ways, which we talk about in her episode 115 for at least the last year and a half. I know I've seen her in various different spaces that I've been in over the course of the pandemic, and so have you. And so- we've always connected and then obviously been friends on Instagram who DM from time to time. And she's just one of those people that when you meet her, whether it's virtually or, well, I guess it's all virtual right now, but I mean, on Instagram or in a Zoom space where you can actually see her face to face, you know, she's just one of those people that you feel very drawn to and like open to and welcome. And she's just so easy to talk to and so insightful and it was just such a joy to talk to her. So I'm excited to connect with anyone that she recommends and (laughs) learn more about Emmy today through Francesca. We're really, I think the point of us here on TIFA is to really build family in that way, you know, build Mm -hmm. off of each other. And I think that those are the best recommendations, whether you're seeking family, friends, or even, you know, professional help, professional providers, whatever you call it, like therapists and things like that is through the power of recommendation. So yeah, it's best to go with people that you know and love and trust. And that's what we're doing today. Yep. Absolutely.
2: When I think of Francesca, it's so funny is like, I think of her as my little sister, but she's that little sister that you learn from, you know, yeah. Like <laughs> I, I always learn something from her and just listening to that podcast. She has so much insight and I love it. I love her.
0: Yeah. Well, shout out to Francesca. One term that she had mentioned that I really liked rather than say, let's say minority, for example, she terms like people of color, women of color, et cetera, BIPOC people as a global majority. And I was like, yes, (laughs) I like that phrase. I was like, that is beautifully said. So, Emmy, as you know, this show is called the Filipino American Woman Project, and we always like to ask our guests a little bit about your family background and what it means to be a Filipino American woman. I know a little bit about your parents is that they were raised in the Philippines, but you and your siblings were born and raised in Ohio, where actually my husband (laughs) was born and raised actually for the first 18 years of his life. So tell us a little bit more about that, you know, kind of from the start with your parents to, you know, that Ohio life and a little bit more about your family background that you want to share. Yeah. Well, my dad is from
2: Cebu. My mom is from Parañaque and they came to the States in the sixties with, I think, $200 they were given by the government, you know, and they came to Ohio. They knew my mom's sister and that's it. And they built a life. All of my siblings, I have three older brothers, were born in Ohio. And then when I was around age five, before I started kindergarten, we moved to a rural town in Texas called Borger, Texas. And we were probably the first Asian family there, which was really interesting because when I would tell my classmates, well, I'm Filipino, they're like, what? They had <laughs> to <nothing> be <that? heard laughs> what Filipino was because they were like, yeah. in- are you Chinese? And I was like, no, are you Japanese? And I was like, no, and what are you? And I was like, well, I'm Filipino. And they're like, what's that? <laughs> like, yeah, they had never. And I actually, I had a Texan accent until mm. I moved to New York. And then I was wow. like, oh, I don't think I'm going to work with a Texan accent. <laughs> I'm not going to get asked. I mean, how many Filipino roles have I come across with needing a Texan accent? Zero. I still have not used that. Wow. I have actually in auditions, so but it hasn't been cast yet.
1: <laughs> yeah. But <laughs> I can uh, imagine there's a very niche market for that. <laughs> exactly. But I think
2: our family was similar to the animation King of the Hill, you know, that takes place in Humble, Texas, a very sp- also another rural town. So it definitely lent to my love of comedy, you know, to get through all of that you have to have a sense of humor, you know?
0: Yeah. I imagine that's just such an interesting story to show up in New York and you're like, yeah, I'm I'm not Japanese. I'm not Chinese. I'm Filipino and I have a Texan accent. So (laughs) any takers?
2: (laughs) You know, it's funny when I moved to New York and it's still this way, people ask me for directions all the time. And then I'd open my mouth at that time and I'd have a Texan accent, you know? It was just so funny that I don't know what, Look, I had that was like, yes, I can help you with directions. But for some reason, people like to ask me for directions in New York.
1: And then they hear the
0: Texas accent and they're like, oh, does she know? Is she going to send me the right way? (laughs) Does she know where she's going? (laughs) Oh my gosh. (laughs) Well, you know, Emmy, I just want to share this to our listeners, but you know, so you moved to New York and you have a long career in entertainment. I know that you had been in theater, I think in the early 1990s. And then in 2000s, that's when you started to get into TV film. So tell us a little bit about just kind of that journey, you know, and I'm curious to know, first and foremost, did you get like a vocal coach to work on your accent, like the Texan accent or, you know, how is that process for you when you kind of realize like, oh, I got to change my accent, you know, to be qualified for certain roles. Right.
2: Right. Right. Well, I'll answer the accent question and then how I got into showbiz. But basically, mm-hmm. the accent was pretty easy to remove because my brothers, you know, growing up in Ohio and then in Texas, and they were older than I was, they didn't develop the Texan accent. So mm-hmm. I could hear the difference, how my mm-hmm. brothers spoke with no accent compared to my teachers and classmates who had a thick Texan accent. So I just was kind of trying to mimic and make sure I finished with my eyes instead of, ha you know, I'd say I, and I stopped using words like y'all, you know? Yeah. So um, it was pretty actually easy because as long as I just switched my brain to like being more conscious about, you know, my language. So that was pretty easy. I didn't have to take a class. And it was funny, like when I was taking acting classes, I could twitch it off very fast if I was reading a script. mm for some reason. I don't know what that was. I think it is the whole brother, you know, having brothers who don't have, having parents who have a different accent and classmates having a different accent.
0: You know, that's one thing I've always appreciated about actors is that like, you know, for example, like the main I mean, actually, I don't want to spoil that because he's not on there anymore. But like, you know, there's some characters that you're watching on a show and then you watch them in an interview and they have a completely like their actual accent. Like, let's say, for example, they're speaking an American accent. But then when you hear them in interviews, they have an English accent. And you're like, whoa, like I didn't know you were from Europe or from the UK. And so I just I think that is something I find most fascinating about actors is just that ability to switch, you know, switch your accent, switch your posture, switch the way, you know, your personality and character. And, you know, I find that quite admirable because that's a skill. (laughs) That's a skill. I, I imagine it takes years upon years of actual practice and everything.
1: On the whole code switching thing, I have many thoughts. And I think that that's also another thing that I admire about actors and actresses is their ability to code switch and kind of observe their surrounding environment and kind of pick up from that. You know, like you said, you had this Texan accent because you were living in Texas and you were five years old and that's how everyone around you talked. But at home, you had brothers that didn't have that Texas accent. You had Filipino parents, you know, so you noticed, I think, one of your intrinsic kind of values as a performer or as an artist, is your ability to pick up on those things from a very early age. And Jen and I, I remember talking about this in one of the first episodes that we ever recorded together about how Filipinas are natural, like chameleons, were able to blend mm-hmm. in anywhere that we happen to be. And that's a narrative that we continue to, I think, confirm through a lot of the interviews that we do here, even up until now, you know, I think one of my aunties that we interviewed a couple weeks ago was also saying the same thing about how, yeah, it's pretty easy for Filipinos to assimilate in, you Mm -hmm. know, wherever they are in the diaspora. So um, I think that that is a beautiful way that you have manifested that ability because while some people are kind of ashamed of that I think you've really mm. taken that on and powered it to use it for your acting career. Mm. Wow well, I never think
2: of it that way and as you were saying that I was like you know I think it also has to do with being the youngest in the family. Mm. Usually the youngest in the family is the one that they have to learn how to get along with all the different people that have been alive already. Mm-hmm. Yeah yeah. Already- So it's also that, but yes, you're right. Like Filipinos are known for, you know, being, like you said, being able to assimilate, being flexible and accommodate sometimes for good and for bad, you know?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So I just appreciate how that's really, you know, come through in your acting career and the success that you've seen.
2: That's a really interesting perspective.
1: I just hadn't thought of that. Thank you.
0: Yeah. You're like, I have some reflection to do later. <laughs> yeah, really interesting. How I got
2: into show business, I saw Miss Saigon when I was a junior in college, and it was the first Broadway play I had seen. My parents took me to New York, and they had told me, they said, we're going to see the show, and there's a lot of Filipinos that are performing in it. And mm. I didn't think anything of it. I was like, I, all I thought in my head was like, oh, I can't wait to see Phantom of the Opera. You know, what <laughs> night have we seen Phantom of the Opera? And then we saw <laughs> Miss Saigon was the first one I I had next to the last row seats in, on the, I think at the second mezzanine. I can't remember if there's two mezzanines, but anyway, you know, the worst seat. And I'm looking down at the top of all the performers' heads and the curtains open and I saw all the Filipino performers on stage. Mm. And it changed my life because I just didn't know that that was even an option. Mm -hmm. And I remember I was sitting there watching it and I was like, that's what I want to do. I had no idea I wanted to be a performer up until that point. I, I'd been singing all my life. I was in the band. I was in the choir. I was taking private flute lessons. I was taking private voice lessons, but I didn't know that I wanted to perform because I just didn't even know it was an option. Mm-hmm. You know, being in Borger, Texas, you know, we don't really have that kind of exposure. And then that changed my life. And I decided my senior year in college, I was like, that's what I'm going to do after I graduate. I'm just going to move to New York and I'm going to try and get into that show. You know, I'm going to take dance classes. I'll, I'll just do what I need to do. I'm already singing. And so I moved to New York Kind of similar to my parents' situation where I didn't know anybody except for Mm. my roommate. You know, we had just met the summer before and I lived at this all women's residence that was owned by the Salvation Army in Gramercy Park. It was the most affordable place I could find. It was already pre-furnished. All you bring is your sheets and you know, it's, it was like a dorm basically, but only mm. for women with very strict hours. Men can't go past the lobby. There's a cafeteria in the basement. Wow. It very, yes, it was very interesting. Safe. Yeah. Uh, an interesting mix of women living there. They were either fresh out of high school or college, or very old, and nobody. Mm. Yeah. So that <laughs> was an interesting uh, introduction into New York City, and I <laughs> love that I have that in my history. You know, it's like that was those were weird days. <laughs>
0: Yeah. But I mean, at least you were safe, right? I mean, I imagine for me, my sister, she's lived in New York city for almost a handful of years now. And I just think to myself, like, I'm like, I don't know how I could do that. I mean, I went to visit her when I first moved out here and there's just a lot going on. There's a lot of people. And You know, I was worried for her and she's my younger sister, you know, so to see her thrive in that space was pretty inspirational and still is even to this day. And so I imagine that, you know, in the craziness of New York life and the busyness of it, I imagine that even having kind of a safe haven like that was a great way for you to start living out there. Yes, definitely. Definitely. Yeah. Glad we had it yeah and emmy you ended up performing on broadway in the production of miss saigon so tell us about like kind of that moment like tell us about the process to even add an audition for the show and what it was like for you to kind of to actually perform and be like you know going back from circling back from when you were younger you're like i'm gonna do that one day you know and then here you are on miss saigon
2: yes well i think i initially auditioned for it in new york city And I didn't get too far. And basically I told my voice teacher what happened at the audition. She goes, you know what they were doing? They were testing out your high notes. They were looking at you for the soprano, which was my voice part. She goes, you have to nail those in order to get into that show because that's your gateway in being the high Mm -hmm. soprano. And I was like, oh, okay. And then I had gotten into a regional theater show here in Galveston, Texas. So while I was in Galveston, Texas, The national tour came through Houston and they opened auditions in Houston. It was just by, you know, luck. So I went to those open auditions, which was to my advantage because how many, you know, people are auditioning for Broadway shows in Houston, not as much as they are in New York. And I went and... I just had that feeling of nailing it, you know, because I had failed at the first one. I knew the second one, I have to have my high notes. And that's exactly Mm -hmm. what happened. I got in because of my high notes and they called me maybe a month or a month and a half later and said, would you like to join the national tour, the Broadway national tour? And I was like, yes, definitely. So I joined that. And then years later, I did it in Germany. We sang it the entire score in auf Deutsch in German. And then after that, I joined the Broadway company. And I was what they call a vacation swing, which was great because I worked at chunks of a time. It's like being an independent contractor Mm -hmm. because the way it works on Broadway when you're in the chorus is you do eight shows a week, you get one day off and you only get two weeks of vacation off. It's a pretty grueling- Yeah. It's a grueling schedule. schedule. And you know, those two weeks, everybody's vying to get Christmas or Thanksgiving off to go see their families. Mm -hmm. So you're pretty sure you're not going to get to see your family during those times. Mm -hmm. So it's a really grueling schedule, but when you're a vacation swing, you're filling in for the actors for like long periods of time. Somebody unfortunately had health issues. So I filled in for her for like three to six months, I can't remember, and then she came back, and then I filled in for like two or three different people that went on vacation, so I was back again for three weeks. So it was really like the perfect situation because I could work on other projects at the same time, but still be on Broadway. And yeah, at that time I lived like three blocks away. It was fantastic. It was like best job of my life. Oh, like a literal dream come true. <laughs> it, was, it really was a dream come true, and Leia Solanga came back. I think it was towards the end of the run on Broadway and she came back and that was really cool because, you know, she inspired so many performers mm. and she was the one that I saw originally in the show. And then to be on stage with her was pretty exciting to be like, oh, she's my colleague now. That was really cool.
1: Yeah, I bet.
0: I feel like it's like, oh, I made it. <laughs> with <Leia> yeah. Salonga. <laughs> Yeah, uh, that's amazing. I Emmy, and I, I appreciate you kind of going back in time and sharing with us that experience, you know, in the early days of you being in New York, you know, since then, you've obviously been on a couple of other amazing TV shows afterward, including Malcolm in the Middle. And also one of the shows that I loved fresh off the boat. <laughs> and yeah, there's just so many here. And I, I'm curious, like, you know, since then, other than the film, we're going to get into here in a little bit. Is there any other roles that you've done throughout that time that have really stood out to you between Miss Saigon up until today that had really stood out to you that you enjoyed doing? I
2: think, I don't know if it's the right time to bring it up. The Girl Who Left Home was probably one of the most exciting parts that I played. And other than that, I would say one of my favorite jobs was doing a show called Men in Trees. It was shot in Vancouver and I played a figure skater. I didn't know how to figure skate. I had to take lessons. <laughs> And seriously, I really did not know even just, you know, like I can get on roller skates and go for it. Right. But ice skates, I had never really been on. And so I was taking, I think I took two or three lessons. (laughs) And so they had a body double for me. Thank goodness. Who was like, (laughs) actual professional figure skater. (laughs) We shot in, I think it was Whistler and we woke up before the sun came up. It was freezing, snow was coming down. And then the sun came up and everything was snow, like covered in snow. It looked like Mm -hmm. icing. It was like winter wonderland. And it was a frozen pond. Nobody had made any prints on the snow yet. And that was, I think the experience was really cool. Not necessarily the role itself, but just the
0: experience was really neat. Wow, that's awesome. I could just imagine, you know, and I'm sure that's one of many stories, you know, of you being able to play different roles and really enjoy the kind of the environment of being able to.
1: Yeah, I can't imagine. I think one reason I could not be an actor is thinking about things like that ice skating, for example, Every time I've tried to (laughs) learn ice skating or even just like exist in the rink, you know, (laughs) on with ice skates on, it's been a huge, huge fail. So (laughs) kudos to you for even, you know. stepping into that space. And thank God for body doubles, right?
0: (laughs) Thank
2: God for body doubles.
1: He was so graceful. I was like, oh my gosh. They
2: would have to cut even just me exiting from the center of the ice. They're
1: like, okay, cut, cut, cut. Yeah. I'll be like all holding on to the side.
0: (laughs) (laughs) That, That actually reminds me of, I have a really good friend from college who went ice skating with me and my friends for the first time. And it was like, you know, I love rollerblading. So, like, ice skating kind of felt like the same, same thing, just a little slippier, slipperier, slipperier. <laughs> and I just remember like the entire time we were in the rink, he was just holding on to the side. Like, and this guy like goes to the gym like every day, like, he weight lifts by like six, seven times a day. <laughs> And then you see him just like, you know, struggling on the side. And I was it's like, it's a different world on ice. <laughs> yeah. I was like, that is so cute to see a muscular guy who can't, who can't even like ice skates. Stand best thing on ever the,
1: on the ice skates.
0: Yeah. Yeah. That's no, nice. <laughs>
1: Without the muscles.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I think that's really hilarious. All right. And so, fast forward to today, Emmy, you are involved. You are an actor and executive producer of the musical feature film titled The Girl Who Left Home. And this is a beautiful story of a girl who in a sense has to kind of choose between her dream and her family's legacy. And I want you all to check out the trailer now, it's actually available on their website, thegirlwholeft.com. But Emmy, you play the mom, the mother of the main character. So you play Mary. And uh, you are Christine's mother and also the wife to uh, Christine's dad who had passed away, unfortunately. And I think this is actually interesting. And I know you had mentioned this in a couple of interviews already, but at the time that you heard about this role, you were going through something similar in your life. So let's go ahead and open up with that and kind of what it meant for you to take on this role. Yes. I have to say this was one of the most
2: rewarding jobs I've had, the most rewarding job I've had. Coincidentally, when I auditioned, I had just lost my dad to pancreatic cancer, yeah. which is a really fast growing cancer. He, From the time that he was diagnosed to the time that he passed, it was only three months. I was living oh. in Los Angeles. I moved back home here with my mom. I lived with her for six months as she mourned. And during that time, I auditioned for the girl who left home. And I picked it up, and I always run my lines with a fellow actor friend. And she was like, Whoa, this is really weird. That I mean, you're essentially playing your mom. Mm-hmm. And I go, I know it's very strange, you know, because here I am living with my mom who just lost the love of her life. You know, I think they were together, is it 45 or 55? My mom's 82 now and she was 78 or 79 when he passed and he was 80, she was 78. So basically I was like, I'm just playing my mom here, you know, Mm -hmm. because this isn't the main story, but what's happening with Mary is she's mourning the loss of her husband. And I just, I put my mom into that, into that situation you know? So it was kind of cathartic. You know, I actually, it helped me to grieve the loss of my mom. I mean, the loss of my dad, sorry. And it helped me to empathize with my mom. And it just, it helped me to cry. It helped me to just go through the pain, you know, because I had to in life and I had to for the film. And yeah, yeah. yeah, so it really meant a lot. And Mallory Ortega, who is the writer, director, producer of the film, she was so kind. Like she included pictures of my mom and dad in the background on the mantle. And that just meant so much to me. And she, I was mourning as I was filming, you know, I was mourning as I was auditioning. And yeah, so the film for me is in dedication to
0: my dad and an homage to my mom. Yeah. And, you know, to our listeners who haven't watched the film yet, The Girl Who Left Home, I'm just going to read a little description of it for you all from the website, girlwholeft.com. When tragedy pulls her back into the life she thought she had left behind, will Christine remain to save her family's restaurant, even if it means giving up her life's dream? The Girl Who Left Home is a live action musical feature film about an Asian-American working class family who must face the past in order to face their futures. There was a part in the trailer, Emmy, that got me to tear up (laughs) before we did this interview. And it was a part when you played the role of, you know, Mary, of Christine's mom. And you said to Christine, Anak, are you going to stay? And I think as Asian American families, we all have that struggle of kind of pursuing your dream versus a family's legacy. And so in addition to everything that you shared and kind of circling back to even our talk early about accents, how was it like for you, you know, to, you know, play a Filipino mom essentially and pull out that accent? Yes, Well, it's funny
2: because when I was doing Miss Saigon backstage, most of my fellow actors are Filipino. So we would speak to each other in a Filipino accent, you know, joking around. And, you know, I'm always teasing my mom. So it was pretty easy. I mean, I'm around her so much. She's (laughs) so much an inspiration for my life within business and just life in general. She really shaped who I am. So, I mean, it felt natural to, to be honest, to play somebody similar to my mom. And this theme of choosing between, you know, Staying at home or fulfilling your own dreams. I think that's a really common struggle that children of immigrants go through. You Mm -hmm. know, not just Filipinos, definitely Filipinos. We all know that. We can all relate to that or we see it in our friends. But I think that's a very common theme with children of immigrants because there's
1: a strong bond with the family. Yeah, absolutely. I think this is also, in addition to the Filipinos being able to be chameleons in a certain way, this is also another. Narrative that we hear often on our show through these interviews is that struggle between kind of the bird taking off from the nest and exploring the world on their own versus coming back and staying close to the family and upholding those expectations that culturally are instilled in us. Again, bringing it back to Dr. Abby's interview, which I don't know what episode that is at this point, but she touches on the Filipino psychology term utang Nalaob. And it's the debt of will that you feel as a Filipino to Mm. your family as part of your kapwa, your shared identity. And so I can only imagine what that felt like for you or what an opportunity that was for you to play the role of your mom as you and your mom were, you know, going through this process of grieving and the loss of your dad and, you know, how that amplified really your expectation or the family's expectations of you to uphold your support for them, but also you having this really rare opportunity to put yourself in their shoes, in this case, your mom's. And I think for any of us, If we, you know, non-actors and actresses, if we had to play anyone, playing our moms would be the most rewarding (laughs) roles that we could possibly think of. So, yeah, just what an amazing opportunity. And I wonder if when you auditioned for that role, did you share with them like what was going on in your personal life? Or is that something that you kind of waited to disclose until you got the role and were diving into, you know, the actual production of the film? Yeah, I definitely
2: shared it with Mallory during the final audition because mm-hmm. I wanted her to know that what I had to bring to the table was something that was
1: personal. very
2: current, very personal, very raw, and that it meant something to me, that there was something behind, you know, her words. But I had a lot to bring to the table just from what was happening in my life. So, yeah, I don't think I could have not shared. That was such a big part of my life, you know, because I closed my apartment. I left my apartment. I closed my life in LA and came back to Texas, you know? Mm, And then, you know, the interesting thing too, the, the title, the girl who left home, you know, Christine is the girl who left home, but so is the mother, you know, she's also the girl who left home. And my mom, my actual mom is the girl who left home. Mm -hmm. She left, you know, her country, she left the the comforts of her home for a better life for her children. You know, I mean, we hadn't been born yet, but once we were born, she was like, you know, she wanted a better life, more opportunities for her children. So she too was the girl who left home. And it was a big learning lesson for me to like, I always felt like growing up, like, ah, they don't understand me because... You know, they're from the Philippines is different culture. And here I am in America and I'm trying to uphold the Filipino tradition, but I'm also wanting to be American and fit in. And it's right. like, man, but everything my parents did was for me, mm-hmm. you know, like they really sacrificed everything they did was for me, you know, and I really understood that more as I was working on this film as we're talking about this film, I'm like, wow, it sounds serious, but there's a lot of funny moments and the music is so uplifting and inspiring. And Haven Everly is an up and coming actress who plays Christine. And it's so exciting to watch her because she, to me... Is this young, beautiful, vulnerable, super talented person? She's like a diamond in the rough, and so is her character. So I felt like there were a lot of parallels with her and her Mm. character. And then Mm. Paulo Montalban plays my brother, and I got to see him play a role that is completely different from him, as you guys have probably seen him on Cinderella. He's known for Cinderella, where he's he was just impeccable, and so exciting to see a Filipino face, right? Playing, and basketball.
0: he still looks the same, like he twenty do. plus years later.
2: <laughs> I know. I'm like, couldn't you have a little bit of midlife pudge, like some love,
0: something? Uh, yeah. Just I was like, like, how is this possible? Challenge. Did you like freeze? Like you just like go somewhere and like? Yeah. Time? <laughs> he needs amazing. To gain some weight. He needs to
2: <laughs> not exercise. That's what I say. But- <laughs> like yeah, it was stop just being really, so healthy. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It was nice to see him play like this goofy role. And it's a side of Paolo that you don't really get to see, but you see it in this film. And he was just a pleasure to work with. And he's really a pleasure to interview with. He's just he's always funny. Has, he's so funny. <laughs> yeah. And he has something really poignant and wise to share. And he's always uplifting other people which I've learned, I'm like, wow, he's just got so many great qualities, you know?
0: Yeah, and you know, again, in the trailer that you all can check out on the website, girlwholeft.com, he said a line in there that really stood out to me as well. And this is after, you know, Christine and, and your character, Mary, lost a husband slash father. And, you know, Tito Toni, the role that he plays, that Paulo plays, he says, where there's life, there still lies hope. And I actually really like that line because I think that I think it's kind of reflective on, you know, just everything that happened in 2020 and how we feel like a lot has been lost for many of us, a lot of opportunities. And unfortunately, we've lost a lot of people during this time as well. And to say something like that, to know that like, hey, where there's life. And I imagine the movie may take a different context to it. But when he said that line, where there's life, there still lies hope. I just like that optimism of like, hey, you're still here. You can still do something. You can still, you know, make a difference. You know, you can honor, let's say your family legacy. You can honor your father because you're still here, you know, and you have something to create. And that's something that I could relate to considering how I lost my dad when I was 10. And to think that everything I'm doing today, I feel like I'm honoring him. I feel like I'm honoring his story and his legacy. And so to know that she herself also um had lost her father, even though I haven't watched the movie yet, I am very intrigued, you know, to watch and kind of see her what her experience is like. And with the trailer alone, like, it's already emotional. (laughs) And Mm -hmm. I imagine that it's just going to make for a great film that I can't wait, you know, and I hope that our listeners, you know, take a watch as well. Nani, any thoughts?
1: Yeah, same. I'm really intrigued and also curious to watch the movie as well. And I'm just wondering, you know, going back to how you said it allowed you, playing this role allowed you to really empathize with your mom in a new way that you know, was special in going through the grieving process that you guys were both in at the time, what were the conversations that maybe playing this role allowed you to also transpire with her? And, you know, how has your relationship with her taken a turn because of it? Or like how much of your performance did you share with her or your preparation for that performance did you share with her? And what were the conversations that transpired from that, I guess I should say?
2: Well, I wish I could say that we had these great conversations, but in all honesty, we have a very traditional Filipino mother-daughter relationship. For sure. And she watched the film and my brothers were like, did you recognize anything in this film, mom? (laughs) Well, that grocery store that they were in, it's like
0: the one we have here, Serapinoy. It looks like the same place. Oh my gosh. That's like, so my mom. (laughs) It's like, but mom, did you get the emotional start? Did you get the message? It's like, oh no, I recognize that. Oh, that person. (laughs) Yeah. I think she had heard. Deflecting. mm -hmm. Yes, exactly.
2: I think she had heard in one of the interviews where I said, this is a dedication to my dad and an homage to my mom. And she repeated that. She goes, I read that. Thank you so much. That's probably as deep as it has gotten. <laughs> I
1: love it. I love it.
2: Like, I mean, I wish I
0: could say it was like. In true Filipino fashion, yeah, yes. It, true <laughs> Filipino, I, it, nothing has changed. I'm glad it's not what we wanted because I could completely relate to that as well. Like, um, yeah. You know, my mom, what is it, in college, I, I ran a Filipino culture and I brought my mom to it. And then for my sister in New York, she also ran a production there. And, you know, both my mom witnessed both of these plays and it seemed like in both situations, all she wanted to do was like take pictures or like secretly record what we were doing. We're like, mom, that's going to be included later. We actually have professional (laughs) camera people recording (laughs) this mom. You don't have to do that. Like, but it was more about like documenting it than it was about like experiencing it and getting in the message and everything. But I just love that. I love that response because like, yep, that's a lot of our moms. Very traditional.
1: It reminds me of when we interviewed your mom and your sister Jen. And I think like me and you and your sister Josephine were all like kind of going trying to dig deep and like take little opportunities to like chip away at her. And she was just like, Yeah, okay. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. My mom was really funny.
0: (laughs) <laughs> yeah. Mom was hilarious. Like I just, when I listen to that replay, I'm just like, oh my gosh, like that's like, so my mom, my sister is temporarily in California, at least at the time of this recording. And we're working with a nonprofit to actually document a story about our dad. I'm just kind of curious if my mom participated in the interview process and like what she had <laughs> said, but anyway, I'm going to ask my sister more about that later, <laughs> but yes, to Filipino moms,
2: <laughs> I think that's yes, what we're trying to say. Here's to Filipino moms, man. Always keeping it real. You know, not letting it get to their heads or get to my head. You know, she's always keeping me intact. It's like, okay.
0: <laughs> there you go. Yeah, for sure. I want to ask one more question before we wrap up here, Emmy, and talk about a life lesson that you want to share. And I want to just go back to the fact that this was like one of your most favorite roles that you played, primarily because it was a lot of Filipinos that are part of the production, whether it's acting or behind the scenes. And and you had mentioned this in an interview with Rise and Shine that like it didn't feel like work for you. You know, and I really love that. Can you tell us more about kind of just that overall experience of being a part of this amazing production? Yes. You know,
2: a majority of the cast is Filipino and also Mm -hmm. behind the scenes, Filipino and Asian. And it did feel, you know, you hear a lot of people go, oh, we're like family. It was honestly like family. Like a lot of the crew lived at Mallory's house sleeping in her childhood room, sharing, you know, space. And then in the mornings, she would literally wake up or somebody else would wake up and scramble eggs for the crew and the Aww. cat. It was like that. And, you know, some situations you can walk in that and be like, oh gosh, is this going to be professional? It was <laughs> professional. It was just home. It was, it felt like home and Family style. Yes. yes. It was so much fun. It really was. That's why it was very rewarding. The process was so rewarding. I was just so happy to see Filipino faces all around me. Yeah, Kind of like, you know, when you go into a room and there's Filipinos in there, it just fits. It feels like you're putting on some sweatpants, you know, it's like, where's where's the karaoke machine? Where's the food? Okay. (laughs) We know we're going to have plenty of food, you know? And not just like cheese and crackers, you know, <laughs> just on, on set. So yes, she wants to make it into a staged musical. And I really hope that happens. I think it's really made for that as well. And it was also really special to me because when I was working, I remember having this intense joy and I was mm-hmm. like, What is going on? You know, like, I mean, I'm always happy when I work. I just had this realization as I was doing this job. And I was like, you know, this is the first time I had been working in the business for almost 25 years. And I was like, this is the first role that is specifically written for a Filipino woman. Mm -hmm. And fortunately, written by a Filipino woman, Filipina woman, excuse me. Yes. And that was really exciting for me. I was like, that's so crazy that. I've been in the industry so long, and this is my first time,
0: yeah, you
2: know? so it really and when went. is the next mm-hmm. and when is the next? Yes, I think it's really opening up, and I'm super excited about that. and I hope it's not just you know this trend thing because of what's happening in our country this last year. I hope that mm-hmm. a true awareness and calling for more inclusion, not just of Asians, but specifically Southeast and South Asians, you know, and muslims and all mm-hmm. different types of people you know people with disabilities like yeah especially you know we just don't see it enough and i think we are moving into a more inclusive world on tv and film
1: i hope yeah me too i think that we're moving into a space where people are well at least i hope we're moving into a space where the majority of people who consume entertainment on these larger platforms are more interested in like people's real life experiences and not so much the glitz and glamour that is typical film and media. Mm-hmm. And so I think that's where, you know, podcasts like this, for example, mm-hmm. are becoming more and more popular because it's literally just real people sharing their real experiences. There's not there's not a lot of like behind the scenes, magic wand action happening to it. And specifically working in film and media, that's one thing that I always wonder, you know, when you do find a project such as this one where everything just fits. And like you said, it feels like putting on sweatpants when you're there and it makes the work easy and it makes the work, you know, the audience can also feel that connection that you all had with the work and with each other. Mm -hmm. What is that like when it's over? Like, oh, dang, you know, like now what? Is this the last time I'm going to get to work with this group of people? We all like work so well together. Like I can't imagine doing one of these podcasts with Jen and then
0: being like, okay, bye. You know, (laughs) we're we're stuck with each other for as long as we want to be on a mic. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah.
2: Yeah, Definitely. Like after that working on girl who left home, I think Haven and I stayed really close and we both went through a depression because it was like, we're never going to have that experience. I mean, I hope we do, but it is not realistically. Yeah. yeah. You know and to play a Filipino role that was fully like 3D, you know, a lot of times yeah. I, I play a role and I I'm the side character. I come in and I make a funny and then I leave. Da, 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 da. You know, it's <laughs> like and I enjoy doing that, but this was a person who had flaws and there was, you know, there was more complexity to her and to Haven's role and we just don't get those opportunities as much as other people do and yeah.
0: Yeah. And, you know, to piggyback off of what Nani was saying earlier, it just gets me to think about like, I just love how, in a sense, you guys created your own table, you know, being able to, rather than kind of try to fit into, let's say the Hollywood scene, it's like, oh, we're going to fund our own, you know, film. We're going to do this ourselves. And that's something that Nani and I like to talk often about, especially in our academic paper, Panay Podcasters, is that in order for us to, you know, redefine success and build self-sustaining communities, we have to create stuff ourselves. You know, we have to kind of be the change that we want to see and i imagine that it must have just felt like a big exhale you know to be a part of a production that was like predominantly you know filipino and that's how i feel when i work with nani as opposed to the other shows i've done where i felt like you know yes i'm really good at assimilating but like there's something different when you don't feel like you have to do that you don't feel like you have to try to fit in or you know just adapt or assimilate like we mentioned it's like oh these are my people yes there is a way to even though we're all at Mallory's place in our childhood home, we do have a balance of a home-like environment and a professional environment. Like that is very possible. And I think in our American society, it almost feels like you have to separate the two. You know, your professional life has to be completely different from your home life. And to hear that you guys were able to, in a sense, combine that together and be productive and get this film wonderfully done. I'm hopeful for more opportunities like this, more projects like this. And just like what you said, Emmy, I'm hoping that this is our time. This is our time to ride that wave of celebrating our heritage and who we really are, not just trying to assimilate. So it gives me a lot of hope. (laughs) I do have a question for you, if you don't mind me asking before we get to our final question. Part of your work as an executive producer is the funding. Can you tell us a little bit of what that's like? Because we had a guest in the past too. And you can remind me, Ardeez uh, our, our Rebang, who was involved in the Star Wars series, but now has branched off herself to uh, you know, create her own production company. It talks a lot about funding. Like at the end of the day, it comes down to the money. Like to make this possible, we need the funding. So tell us a little bit about that and kind of what your role was into making this film possible. Yes, I kind of
2: fell into fundraising. You know, Mallory had said, you know, if you guys on social media could just get the word out that we're doing the seed and spark campaign. And so I kind of thought about it and I really am uncomfortable with fundraising. When mm-hmm. I was in band, I had to sell fruitcakes and my mom <laughs> would not help me. She's like, no, no, because I was like, can I just put this order form at the office? And then if people want it, they can order fruitcakes. And she's like, no, that's rude. That's unprofessional. That's rude. No, you don't mix the two. No. And I was like, oh, so it's ever since banned trying to sell fruitcakes, I can't stand fundraising. So mm-hmm. I was like, okay, how can I make this fun? And I was like, I'm going to do it from the point of Mary Santos, you know, the Filipina mom. So I was like, I did a th- thing where I was searching for Bolot. And here I am in Texas, a suburb of Houston, Texas. And I was like, I'm going to go through all the fast food drive-in restaurants that are like five minutes away from here. And I'm going to ask if they have Bolot. And so <laughs> I self-recorded myself going through these drive-thrus. Like, and it was, I think El Pollo Loco was the first one. I was like, i no, you know, I see you have lots of chicken. Do you have a blot? You know, the un- unfertilized egg, that one is like a snack. <laughs> <laughs> of oh course, God. you know what the answer is. And so I just kept taking, like, doing videos of that and people would big. <laughs> From those stupid videos, people would bid and be like, if Emmy, if Nanai, they called me Nanai, if Nanai, which is mom for those who don't speak Tagalog, if Nanai raises up to 500, then she will eat a balut because I'd never eaten.
1: And so that's how I raised the first 500. The other was- uh, Wait, so then where did you find it to eat it when you made the 500?
2: I had to go to New York and I went wow. to, you know, there's two, well, it's no longer open. It was, it was called Maharlika. It's the sister uh, restaurant to Jeepney in New York City. Oh. So I tried my first balut in New York City. Oh my gosh. Wow.
1: Yeah. That's so crazy. Yeah. When I was in the Philippines, everybody was like, are you going to try it? Are you going to try it? I was like, nope. No. <laughs> <laughs> if you pay me $500, maybe, yes. but... <laughs> What a creative idea. I love that. I want to see these videos.
2: (laughs) They don't have it at El Pollo Loco. They don't have it at Panda Express. They don't have it at McDonald's, Panera or Taco Cabana. I'll tell you that. Don't
1: waste your time. Don't waste your time. (laughs) And you're, you're like, like going this. to Panera yeah. <laughs> and ordering some balot. <laughs> I,
2: and I go, maybe they have BLT bolot, lettuce, and tomato salad sandwich.
1: <laughs> oh my god, that is hilarious. What a so creative I found that idea. Like
2: fundraising <laughs> had to be for me entertaining. And
1: Absolutely.
2: I, yeah, I was like, you know, and I can't do it as me. I have to do it in character. So I don't feel like I'm begging it, Like, it's just so unc- yeah. fundraising. I don't know anybody who really enjoys fundraising. So it's going to have to find your way. And the other way I sang, I would offer to sing people a song and tag them if they gave, like, I can't remember if it was 25 or 50. That mm-hmm. was another way. And then To get people to join our Seed and Spark campaign, I would do a lot of videos of myself praying to the baby Jesus and all the my mom's statues. And I would talk to (laughs) the statues. (laughs) I still have them up because I'm I'm sorry, I even crack myself up when I watch them. so stupid. So Then because I raised a certain amount of money, then I became an executive producer. It was my my first time doing it, but I was not on board as executive producer from the beginning. It was like a little bonus that I got from the
0: Yeah, they're like, Emmy's really creative with fundraising. Let's make her an executive producer. deserve that title. (laughs) (laughs) We deserve
1: that title. How hilarious. (laughs) hilarious.
0: (laughs) Oh my gosh. Was there any other creative ways that people on the team fundraise that is pretty hilarious?
2: I'm trying to remember. I think it was before I had joined the cast. Somebody might have dressed in drag. Something like that, yeah. You know, there you they, go. There you like, go. People chipped in and they would dress in drag. So, yeah, people got creative with it. <laughs> and I find that, and I I heard Diane Paragas talk about her fundraising for her film yellow rose it really mm. is from the filipino community it's within mm. your filipino community where they want us to succeed so they're our biggest supporters and definitely like within my circle it was college friends high school friends that i hadn't heard from in wow. years and was so nice it was very rewarding like i was yeah. like i never sold those fruit cakes very well oh, <laughs> it makes me feel good <laughs> all goes back to the band camp up to the band (laughs) fruitcakes
1: yeah no I for sure I remember when I was younger in like grade school selling the chocolate bars and I was probably always like in last place because I just hate asking people for money it's weird even if you're selling them something I'm not like a natural salesperson or like solicitor so yeah if I was tasked with that I would definitely have to get creative as well but I don't know if I could come up with something as good as that.
2: (laughs) I have an idea. Show the birth of your son. There you go.
1: (laughs) Yes, that is something that I have been weirdly obsessed with lately. I don't know if it's at first I was like, I want to prepare myself for like anything that could happen. So I'm watching all these YouTube videos of people filming their births, right? And now it's at the point where like, okay, I've seen 25 of these videos now. Do I really need to keep watching them? Probably not. But am I addicted now at this point to like psyching myself out? Maybe. Oh my gosh, you're brave. They're weirdly like uh, addicting. I don't know why I don't just stop. I'm like, you know what? Everyone's experience is different and no matter what I plan for or, you know, try and expect based on what other people tell me or what I watch on YouTube, my experience is obviously going to be different, but I just can't stop. (laughs) It's like watching Dr. Pimple Popper. Yeah, exactly. Exactly the same effect. (laughs) This is like, like off topic, but
0: sort of on the same topic. Like I, there was a time where like I had friends who were so obsessed with watching proposals, you know, like marriage proposals Mm -hmm. and, you know, like the, you know, like the best ones or the most romantic ones. And I got so annoyed by it. I remember I was like in the living room with my friends. I was like, let's watch proposals that went wrong. So we're just watching all the ones that went wrong, and I loved it. You know, I was like, okay, let's see the opposite end of this, you know. Oh but I think you could definitely go down a YouTube rabbit hole, you know, yeah. when you get into things like that. Yes, it's
1: so easy, but that is definitely a creative way people are making money these days because they are making money off of those videos. Wow. wow. But that was fun. That was a fun conversation. <laughs> <laughs> so, we hit. So- Pregnancy on YouTube, fruit, balut. Balut <laughs> at Panera. <laughs>
2: yeah, Panera. They don't have BL, balut lettuce and tomato sandwiches at Panera.
1: <laughs> oh my gosh. Oh my gosh. I have to see these videos.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, for sure. Well, you know, Emmy, as we come to a close here, we always like to wrap up with a life lesson. And for you, just kind of reflecting on how you've been in showbiz for such a long time, you have found that the most important thing is to surround yourself with good friends, but not just any kind of good friends. Go ahead and explain that to us and you know what it means to actually surround yourself with good friends. Yes. Well, anytime
2: you're in show business or the music business or even any type of freelance, you know, business where you don't have your regular 9 to 5 job there's a lot of rejection you know mm. there's a lot of ups and there's a lot of downs and a lot of questions not knowing what's going to happen in the future and so i think it really is super important to surround yourself with good people having community and community can be two people or mm. it can be 20 mm. and i think for me the thing that has happened over and over again or what comes out in my life is not just to find nice people but kind and authentic people. I think it's really rare because I think kindness is is something truly unique. You know, it's it's not just when I think of nice, I think polite, you know, but kindness is really giving of yourself and supporting each other. And I get this from the two of you where there's like a true like camaraderie there, true support system between the two of you. And I think that's just really super important to have in order to get through the hard times because it's a rocky road. Show business is a rocky road and I'm 50 now. I've been in it for a long time and it does not get easier you know, mm. so yeah. your friends and your family are super important.
1: Yeah. I love how you touch on, or you specify that community can even just be two people, you know, as small as two people, you don't need a whole, a whole universe of people to call it community. Cause that's really how Jen and I started, you know, mm-hmm. and I'm glad that you can feel that kind of just through being sharing space with us here on zoom But it really is, you know, a lot of the times Jen and I and that's our family and the way that we build on our family is, again, how I talked about in the beginning, building on the power of recommendation and referral. And when we interview people here on the TIFA Project, we're not just interviewing you. We want to know your family background. We want to know your story. We want to connect with other people that you've worked with or that you live with or that, you know, share the same blood as you or we want to know your people, you know, because your people are our people now that you're our people. So, (laughs) um, yeah, I just, I love that that's your life lesson. And I think that it just reaffirms everything that we do here, as well as, you know, the relationship that specifically Jen and I have on our own, without you guys. No, just kidding.
0: <laughs> Offline. <laughs> yeah, I agree. Just to, you know, piggyback off of Nani and just with your life lesson today, Emmy. My husband and I, when we moved out to the East Coast, I basically, you know, felt like I had to start over. My family is like mainly in California. My sister is the only one kind of out here in New York City. And it was hard. Like, I mean, even till now, I'm three years in and it's like, you know, really hard. But what I've come to learn is, just like what we're talking about here is like the importance of community, the importance of good friends and Maybe it's just what they call the Southern hospitality here, but like people here are extremely friendly and want to talk to you and kind of give you eye contact. And I feel like I have this like automatic, like reflex to wave at people now whenever I see people, because that's just kind of the culture around here. But another thing that I feel like I've come to appreciate living out here is in addition to what you said, Emmy, you said like, you know, don't just like connect with people that are nice, but also kind and authentic. The way that I see community is like, who is willing? to continuously engage with me. Like if I'm putting myself out there and and Nani knows this, I'm the first to like be really generous and really kind and be really helpful. And if it's reciprocated, and that's how I felt with Nani actually very early on, it's like, we kind of keep the relationship going. But if it's not reciprocated, I've learned, and Nani knows this, I'm talking about this on Chismas with Jen and Nani about some people I have, some friends, ex-friends I've made out here, (laughs) story for later. But, you know, just learning when to pull back that generosity when you know it's not being reciprocated but to really focus on those people who continue to engage with you, continue to check, you know, check in with you and um actually care about you and support you, not just like spectators that are like, oh, you know, go Jen, you're doing so many great things. Like I believe in you, but people who actually want to be involved in your journey and share their journey with you, I have found to be a great way to uh, be in community with people and to feel like I'm not alone, <laughs> you know, out there. So I just, I really like your perspective on that, considering how, you know, you've been in the space for quite a long time. And yeah, I just think good, you know, good people, good life, right? <laughs> I think that's yeah. a good way to kind of describe it. Yes. I think what you
2: are finding the people that you gravitate to, there's an authenticity, a real, like they're invested in, yes that's in what a great way to put doing. it and you're also invested in them i think and engaging like when you're giving too much you know and mm-hmm. the, yeah i think the authenticity and the kindness kind of those two things when you find that in a person keep them close you know
0: yeah for sure yeah cuz i mean there's definitely those situations where you could be giving a lot and then someone could be taking a lot you know lot. and that yeah. is not a good relationship to be in <laughs> so yeah.
1: Yes. Community is about quality, not quantity.
0: <laughs>
1: yes. 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 That. Love
0: it. Well, ladies, I feel like we have come to the end of our conversation. Emmy, I want to thank you so much again for joining us. Any closing thoughts? Nope. I really enjoyed myself here. Thank you so much. You know what?
2: What I enjoy about your podcast, it when I'm listening, I was like, oh, I like that this is more of a conversation than an interview, you know? Mm. And I really like that. I think what you're creating is a community here. And that's really nice. So thank you for allowing me to be part of it. Well, thank thank you. you.
1: Yes. No, we like to do living room, also family style here
0: at the Tiva (laughs) Project. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Thank you for saying that, Emmy, because I really with the show, it's for me, my mission is always to create that common ground. You know, like I want people on the show who, you know, have an open heart, open mind, are open to collaborating and having just a candid conversation. And we've been so fortunate to, you know, here we are hundred plus episodes later to keep that going and, and to know that there are people such as yourself who want to support that, you know, because, you know, obviously maybe the crab mentality is going away, but it still very much exists in our community. So if we can essentially be the change that we want to see, even just in conversation such as this, I'm grateful. I'm glad that we can contribute in a positive way to our community and continue to uplift each other. And of course, this wouldn't be possible if it wasn't for Nani co host with me because, you know, just our dynamic, I just, I can't live without it
1: when it comes to the show. Jen for creating it and maintaining it. So,
0: and producing it. So yes, deflecting again, more deflection here. (laughs) <laughs> yeah. It's a hot potato compliment thing. <laughs> doing, But once again, to our listeners, if you want to learn more about Emmy, go ahead and check out her website. So check out emmicaligato.com also on Instagram, emmicaligato. And she's also on YouTube and IMDB. She's just kind of everywhere. So make sure you Google her, find her, support her, and of course, support the film, which is titled The Girl Who Left Home, which is you can learn more about it at the website, girlwholeft.com. All right, with that said, we love you all and we'll chat with you in the next episode. Tune in next time. See you next Thank
1: week. You. Thank you, Emmy.
0: Thank you so much.